Hello from all of us at From the Front Row. My name is Steve Sonier. Today we'll be chatting with Lena Tucker Reinders, the Executive Director of the Iowa Public Health Association. Following her graduate education, Lena was the legislative liaison for tobacco control at the Minnesota Department of Health. That work opened doors for her to move to Geneva, Switzerland, where she spent seven years at the World Health Organization, focusing on strategic planning, communication, and health equity. Upon her return to the United States, Lena has spent time consulting on various public health projects ranging from social protection, global health system development, and maternal and child health with a focus on health equity. Here is our interview with Lena. Reading your biography, we saw that you had moved around a lot and you had a lot of experiences in different sectors within public health. What made you settle down here in Iowa? I have moved around a lot and and I've worked in several different settings from local public health, um, county, state government. um, And then of course I I spent some time at the World Health Organization. Uh, My family moved back to Iowa or to Iowa. Um, I'm not here, not from here originally, um, essentially because my husband's work. So I was um, what we call a trailing spouse. And so I also had that experience of trying to build a brand new network in a new location. So, yep, it was my family, my husband's work that brought us here, um, and we've been here for seven years now. People have heard me say in the past um, that when I moved to Iowa, I really didn't know anybody, um, and I, but I knew that I wanted to work in public health, and so I knew I needed to build a network to do that, and IPHA is the first place I turned to. I signed up as a member and wrote to the then executive director, Janine Moody, and said, I'm here, this is what I'm interested in, and how can I get involved? That's awesome. Janine's a fantastic resource and and a wonderful way to start things off. Shifting gears kind of to IPHA, what is IPHA and how is it different from APHA? If you can go into a little bit of differentiation between those two organizations and what they stand for. Sure, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so IPHA is, of course, Iowa Public Health Association, and we are the statewide uh, membership, professional membership organization for public health professionals in the state. And when I say public health professionals, it's really anybody who's studying, is working in, has an interest in public health. We know that public health is, is so broad and it captures um, so many fields of work. When we look at social determinants of health, um, you know, we have allies in education and transportation and workforce development and you know, rural development. And, and we have, our membership reflects that. And so we are the, like I said, the statewide public health association for Iowa. And our relationship with APHA or the American Public Health Association is that we are the state affiliate for them, but we are an independent organization. So we are our own 501c3. We don't have any um, there's no supervisory relationship with APHA or anything like that. As a state affiliate, um, we are part of that broader network. And so whereas IPHA is a great network for prof- working professionals and students in Iowa, the APHA is a network for all of the affiliates. And so, for example, every month I get on a call with other state affiliates around the country and we discuss what's going on in our states. And, and if we have an issue that we're dealing with here in Iowa, I can talk with other, other state affiliates and say, how are you guys handling this? And get ideas. Um, so we, we do pay um, some membership dues to APHA, and that's just so that we, it supports the, how they support us as state affiliates. 
but we, we have a special day at the annual conference that APHA puts on that where we highlight work of the affiliates, but it really it's more of a network. That's fantastic. No, and it's a very good overview of the two relationships between the organizations and what they stand for. When you're talking about what the successes are, what you're presenting as a goal kind of uh, within the context of the current pandemic, what really has been IPHA's role in, in battling the current pandemic? You know, when, when we first started talking about the pandemic, it was, and it kind of reached us, it re- reached Iowa, and when we first started having community spread, I really thought about that question a lot, because as a professional network, you know, we are here to support our members, support public health professionals and students, but we're not the frontline workers. So, you know, we're not um, county health departments that are doing contact tracing. So kind of what was our lane? And it, and it was a, a little bit of a challenging question to, to start off the pandemic with. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I have found is that really our role is to support local public health to raise their voice, to amplify their voice. Of course, our mission is to uh, unite and strengthen the voice for public health in Iowa. And I feel that the pandemic has really empowered us to do, or it's so important for us to do that even more now because uh, our local public health teams are, are, they are on the front line and they're exhausted. I'm worried that with so many conflicting viewpoints and the bickering that goes back and forth on social media that our public health professionals aren't getting the respect that they deserve and not just in Iowa but but across the board you know we see people questioning science at overall we see people questioning CDC and Dr. Fauci and and there's different guidelines and sometimes contradictory guidelines and that all um, is kind of presenting or resulting in an erosion of trust of public health. And so we want to build that back up and we want to make sure our local public health professionals and, and state public health professionals are the trusted source of information, of credible information, of epidemiological information. And so we have really been a voice for them and backing their work. Um, we have been also providing information via our social messages social messaging platforms about different evidence-based research and guidelines and and trying to explain that that just because the guidance and guidance is shifting, that doesn't mean we're waffling. It means we're learning. It's a novel virus, which by definition means that we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. But we have learned from past pandemics, from past infectious disease outbreaks, and we know what the best practices are. And so we've really been trying to reinforce those. Most recently, we have taken a stronger advocacy position because as the evidence points us more and more towards wearing masks in public, kind of universal masking, and we have yet to see a mask mandate in Iowa, we have taken a stronger advocacy position on that and calling on the governor to issue a mask mandate or at the minimum of not preempting local control. We have several um, counties and cities that are, are wanting to take that matter into their own hands and say, we've read the evidence, we uh, understand the spread in our communities, and we, wanna, we want to issue a mass mandate for our municipality. And we feel that, that they should be able to do that. Um, Iowa's a big 
state <laughs> and we have different rates of spread across the counties. The communications aspect of public health has always been, I feel like, a very difficult point to navigate, right? Where we're trying to figure out how do we communicate that science is this process that we have to go through. It's not something that we have an immediate correct answer. When we're talking about the idea of presenting this to the public and I feel like there is that general tenacity for folks to, you know, jump down your throat if you don't get it exactly right the first time. What do you do in terms of public health messaging? What is, what do you, in your experience has shown to be effective in dealing with it in the appropriate manner, especially when it comes to something as simple as wearing a mask in public? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, I think we're still learning about health communication and, and how we do that. I mean, we used to have the, have, take a very simplistic approach, just say no, right? Without, mm-hmm. without um, looking at the bigger context. And, you know, even since then, our society has become ever more an instant gratification society. You know, you click on a link and you get the video. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to the library to research things anymore. You just click on, you know, Google or Wiki and there, and there the information is. Likewise, we're used to having quick fixes for diseases. And so, you know, I have, you know, I have an infection, so I take a pill and it, and it clears up. And none of this matches that. And people are scared, they're anxious, they're frustrated, they're tired. We're not used to problem solving in this way. And, and I think the best thing we can do for, for communicating is back to the basics and transparency. And, you know, we have to be confident what we, with what we say, but on the, the flip side of that if, is if I think we're for overconfident and then, and we don't admit that we're still learning, that's when we, then we, we can kind of um, cut ourselves off at the knees, right? Because, you know, we are so confident in that what we say, we, two weeks, a month later, we have to change it. We have to say something else because we've learned that initial overconfidence can come back to, to harm us. And so I think really transparency and humility are important. And, and it's also important to understand what motivates people and, and how people make their decisions. Um, I attended a, a, a presentation last year at the, the APHA annual meeting. It was on communication. It's called the Moral, moral Foundations Theory. It really was talking about how do we communicate messages, how do we kind of sell public health, and how do we tailor our messages based upon where, where people are coming from. And the example they used were, it was immunizations. And, you know, we can't make a blanket assumption of somebody. If they are against immunizations, they fall into this box. If they, mm-hmm. you know, if they vote this way, then they fall into that box. And it's really about looking at what motivates people to make the decisions that they make. And so is, is somebody who's resistant to wearing a mask, is it because they, um, you know, the, the, quick, the quick answer is because they're obstinate or because they don't trust science or because they're whatever, but, or is it because they have anxiety about, they, they have asthma, they have something, you know, something else that is motivating and fueling their, their resistance, or have they had a negative experience uh, with, um, with something similar in the past, uh, you know, we look at uh, racial disparities in our in our community, and we wonder sometimes why the black community, especially, has um, differential um, rates of use of the healthcare system. And of course, we we know there's there's wide um, disparities in health outcomes. But let's look at the full picture of that, and and where is the trust issue? And we know that the that 
very negative history in terms of the treatment of Black people and people of color in our country in terms of medical research and science. And so when we look at the full picture and we understand what motivates trust, what motivates decision making, then we can be more intentional in our communication. And so, I mean, that's true for anything. And then I think with the pandemic, again, you throw into the fact that there it is heightened anxiety, it is heightened fear. We're worried about whether to send our kids back to school and what's going to happen to our teachers and our elderly parents at home or grandparents at home. And science, science messaging, even though we find it cut and dry, it's perhaps sometimes too sterile. And we need to make sure that we are addressing the whole person in, in our communication and not jumping to conclusions and, and being judgmental in how we communicate and how people receive that communication. And I think that you're right on the nose with that and the address and the whole person concept and also being you know respectful. I think that's ultimately what it really boils down to, right? Is you wanna approach it from a field of respect and not this top-down situation that can sometimes be the appearance of it, but really you know honoring the person and honoring the conversation. Right. And, and, and remember that public health, you know, our role is to look at populations, um, mm-hmm. but people come to us as individuals and with their individual experience. And so just because I can read the population data and say that this is what the data are telling me, we know that, that there's always outliers and there's um, you, the individual experience doesn't always match the population data. There's that tension between population and individual um, experiences. And, and our job in public health is to represent um, population-based evidence and promote policies that are going to do the most well, you know, do the most good for them, for the most people, you know, of course, with an equity lens in place as well. And within that, doing the most good for the most amount of folks, I know that a lot of people have their eye on what's coming up in the next few weeks, such as the big school year for folks and starting that off. IPHA has recently provided some recommendations about this. Can you talk a little bit more about the points that IPHA is making here with that population and with that health equity lens in place? Well, similar to the mask mandate calling for masks to be worn, and if the governor is not going to issue a statewide mandate, we'd like to see the ability for local control. I feel the same is true for schools, um, that school districts need to be able to, to read their communities, um, tr- again, build a, working from their relationship with local public health, working with their school nurses who are you know, inside their district that can, can help make these health policy decisions. They need to be able to respond uh, quickly and appropriately for their districts. And they've been working hard doing that. It would be helpful to have reasonable statewide guidelines and guidance on things like, you know, when case rates and when do we when do we shut schools? What is recommended? Um, it would be nice if those were consistent with um, with CDC policy, with WHO policy. But we just saw the governor issue guidelines that, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many um, health professionals and epidemiologists around the country, are too high. So now schools are again at this place where they want to do what's right for their students and they've been looking at different guidelines and different evidence and now we have a, have a mandate that says um, you must continue in school until you reach 15% positivity um, or higher and and 10% absenteeism. And so whereas it's on one hand, it's nice to have, it's helpful to have state guidelines because many of our school districts cross counties, um, those guidelines need to be reasonable. 
and schools within those guidelines need to have flexibility to react and respond appropriately. Um, you know, we don't dictate to superintendents when they close schools for weather, for snow or anything like that. Um, you know, we trust them to, un to understand what's coming to their community, what's what's best for the for the students and staff of their districts. I think the same is true for the pandemic. Uh, but the difference of being is that this is a very long um, process. This is not an acute snowstorm, blizzard, tornado. And so it's difficult for the school districts to be able to plan if everything that they do is on a 14-day window, if, if they have to continue to get to ask for exceptions to the rule, exceptions to the rule, exceptions to the rule. And again, you bring back the heightened anxiety that we're living in, the exhaustion. Um, our, our school districts have been working all summer on their return to learn plans, um, and now they've recently learned that maybe their return to learn does, plan doesn't fit. And so what would be nice is to have, and, and what would be you know really helpful and beneficial to public health, not just nice, would be to have consistent guidelines that are consistent with CDC best practices, WHO best practices that are really evidence-based um, that, that provide yet still flexibility for the school districts to respond to the needs of their communities. I mean, it's an incredible weight for the teachers who are coming back into the situation for parents, for students. And, and, and within these upcoming situations here, what do you think IPHA's goal is within the next several coming months? Where are you hoping to best serve in the context of this? Well, we're going to continue to do what we've been doing and being um, being an advocate for evidence-based policymaking um, and ev evidence-based decisions. Um, we're going to continue to be a resource um, in terms of health education material information that's going out via our networks. And then also another important thing that I haven't mentioned yet is just being kind of a supporting network for each other. Every week I send out an email to members, um, you know, basically saying, you know, I got your back and I believe in you and you're doing great work. And it's so important to hear those messages for all of us because that's not always what we're perceiving when we're out in public and we're the only one wearing a mask, right? And we also provide opportunities for people to, to connect Otherwise, you know, every once a week we have we kind of we host a Zoom happy hour that people come and they just kind of relax and we can kind of download on what's going on. Um, we are working with a student, a University of Iowa student, study, uh, undergrad studying public health. Um, she's in AmeriCorps Vista with us this this summer, and she's working on a project where she's collecting the kind of lived experiences, the stories of of local public health through the pandemic. And so she'll be interviewing public health directors around the state and so just letting them tell their story. And then we'll share those stories um, either through social media or when we develop our advocacy campaign for the next legislative session saying that, you know, these are your local public health, health professionals and they need your support. They need your trust. They need your leadership and, and they need your funding and, and your commitment. So we'll be using their lived experiences that they, they may not have time to, um, you know, to, to be writing up every day what's going on um, and but yet if they can if they can share those messages with us then we are happy to, to amplify those and you mentioned some of the benefits along the way and then for our audiences as a incoming and returning kind of public health student what are some of the other benefits that you can get from IPHA I know you had mentioned the opportunity to take part of some of these you know initiatives like you talk about interviewing public health officials across the state of Iowa 
how can students get more involved with IPHA and what kind of goes into being an IPHA member as a student? Well, first and foremost, I think that the benefit is just being part of a network, being part of a professional network. Uh, as you advance in your education and then get into the job market, you quickly realize, no matter what field you're in, that, um, and it sounds cliche, but it's not always what you know, it's who you know. And so the, the more you can engage in, in your network of professionals, the more connections that you, you make. And so we have opportunities in IPHA um, for students to get involved. For, uh, for anybody to get involved, we have several standing committees that, that help us do our work. So we have a, an advocacy committee um, that helps us set our legislative, legislative agenda and helps us um, get new action alerts out and, and we'll, we'll send those out and, and people can talk to their elected officials and, and whatnot. Um, we have a communications committee that really helps us focus on what messages we're sending out and how do we set the tone of those. Our education committee, sets our programming schedule for the year, um, including things like our third Thursday lunch and learns, um, where we talk to different uh, members about what they're doing in their work. And so so it helps to, to shine a light on the breadth of public health ha that's happening across Iowa. And then our membership committee. And that one is all about um, how do we enhance the membership experience and how do we bring new people into IPHA. And so for students, it's a great opportunity for you to get involved, do some volunteer work that is particularly relevant to your um, career field. And so if you, if you think about it now, um, you know, you have your cohort of students and, and you all, you know, you have group projects together, you work together, you may maybe compete a little bit for grades here and there, you know, for standing. Um, but in a, in a year or two when you all graduate, you're going to be each other's real competition on the job market. And so whatever you can do to set yourself apart from one another is going to give you an edge as well. Um, and so we feel that IPHA not only is your network for how do you meet people and how do you um, learn what other professionals are doing and get exposure to different um, career possibilities for you, but it's also a way for you to set yourself apart and say, these are the leadership experiences that I've had in my field already. Within those experiences too that you're talking about, and especially the volunteer concept, I know that there's a lot of interest right now in online volunteering opportunities or, or something to that extent, you know, not necessarily a face-to-face -face given the situation with the pandemic. Do those opportunities exist for incoming or returning students in that capacity? Most of our meetings, they are and always have been virtual. Um, and that's because we're a statewide organization and Iowa's a big state. And so when we have our monthly meetings of our advocacy committee or our communications or education committee, those all happen online. Um, they used to happen over the phone, over, over a call and conference line. Now they're more and more happening over Zoom and all those planning meetings happen over Zoom. And so there's, there's no reason just because you're in Iowa City or maybe you're a student um, at UNI or you're you know, elsewhere, I you, um, we have people across the state that come together monthly on these calls that, that do the planning for, for our team. In fact, even our board, our board of directors, which students have um, opportunity to serve as a, as, a board, as a director on the board. Um, the only qualifications to be a member of the board is that you've been an IPHA member for at least a year. Um, our board members are they come from our membership and they are voted on by our membership. So I would love to at some point to see a student on the board of directors. But anyways, even our board of directors, they meet virtually. Um, so um, there's really no limitation in how someone can, can participate. The last point I wanna to touch on while we've got time here is 
within the context across your working within the field of public health, what is one thing that you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? I think this is a great question. I, there's, there, you can have so much fun with this one. Um, but really, the, when, I, when I thought, and this is the question I probably thought about the most, the more experiences that I have and that I have had in my career, and the older I get, the more I realize how much lived experiences really matter. Um, we talked a little bit about it in our communication, um, how we communicate with people. But I, what I realize when I look back, the things that I've been wrong about are usually, um, I've been wrong factually, I've been, you know, misquoted something before, but really the things that kind of, that get me at the heart that when I realize I've been wrong are when I've judged someone or something incorrectly. And when I've done that, it's always because I haven't had the, the, a similar lived experience and, and I haven't um, been in their shoes before. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it can be simple things like I think before, you know, so I have three kids and um, they range in age from nine to 15. And so we're a family of five, which means we have five different schedules. And as they get busier and our family dinners are more rare, I realized that I used to, even though I wouldn't have admitted at the time, I used to judge people who didn't have family dinners because I know um, from my growing up, from um, evidence and, and nutrition and, and such that, you know, family mealtime is so important for, for relationship building, for nutrition, you know, that's everything else. And I thought, and I, no, I used to think like, well, why wouldn't you have a family dinner? Um, and, and some of the academic things like, well, if you're a single mom and you're working, da, da, da. But, um, but I, what I realize is just how hard things are. Um, and so that's a very simple, simple example from, you know, um, a personal example. But, there, but there's other times, too, when I've been working with coworkers and, and thought, well, why are you doing it that way? We, you know, the evidence points to it this way. And being kind of hard and fast in how I approach something more scientifically without that, the whole picture realization that you have to put into context. And um, so, I, so I think that's where, where I would say my mistakes have, have lied in not, and not giving the grace of what experience brings to us. I think that that's an incredibly important point is the idea of, you know, we do so much research and we do so much, you know, reading and, and all this higher level stuff. And it very much, so that's the other part of public health, right, is the implementation side of things. What are the realistic uh, ways that I'm actually going to go about doing this and how is this going to affect, you know, boots on the ground, fit, you know, affect the everyday person? How is this actually going to translate into an experience? So that's a fantastic point to hit on. I really do appreciate you, you mentioning that. I do want to thank you for coming on to our podcast today and I didn't get any chance to chat with you about IPHA and, and we do wish you the best of success in this upcoming year and we look forward to hearing more about you and your organization's uh, progress. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I, um, I love talking with students, with, uh, with groups of people and kind of sharing my public health experience. So um, anytime I can do that, it's always, it's always um, a joy for me. That was our interview with Lena Tucker-Rinders of IPHA. Thank you for tuning in to From the Front Row. Please share this episode with your colleagues and network if you enjoyed it. This week's episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Steve Sanye. 
you can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're also on iTunes and Spotify as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Let us know your thoughts or if you're interested in being interviewed at our email, cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Thanks for tuning in this week and stay safe and stay healthy.